am Charlotte. I'm a therapist based in little old New Zealand. Life is too short to walk around feeling crap, so come and join me as we explore how to feel better. Whether feeling better for you is about managing anxiety, improving your relationships, lifting your mood, or working out who you are in this world, this is the place where I hope you will find some strategies and insights that will help you feel better. Thanks for joining me. Okay, I've got some questions to answer today. And the first one is about how do I deal with friendship breakdowns in child rearing years? I'm feeling isolated. It is so incredibly common for people to have challenges around loneliness and isolation and friendship um, over these years of your life when, to be honest, um, your friends are really, really important to you and uh, play a particularly important and special part in your life, except uh, so much of your energy is being kind of tapped out on your family life within your home. And especially if your kids are little, there's just a lot going on on that relational front anyway. But you equally are in this time of desperately needing your friends. So um, I totally kind of hear the pain of this one. There is a meme that floats around from time to time online about Lord of the Rings and how um, actually Frodo's greatest achievement is still having three close friends. And I think that that really speaks to something of actually um, maintaining friendships is something that can be really hard work and something that takes a lot of navigating. So that is definitely a reality that a lot of other people face and everyone thinks everyone else's friendships are going great when that is um, certainly not always the case. So a few pieces of advice on this one. I think one of the first things, if you're still in that really tender time of um, feeling really crap about yourself because things are not going well on the friendship front, I think there's a real need for some TLC um, in your direction. So thinking about how you care for yourself, what are you feeling, how do you show up for yourself with some extra doses of kindness and compassion through this time. And it may be that you're a bit lonely and isolated on the friendship front, but I'm sure there'll be other opportunities for connection around you, um, within your relationship, with your children, with some other people that you have connections with, even thinking about sort of lighter than friendship level connections with neighbours, acquaintances, and kind of leaning into those for a period of time, perhaps workmates, if that's um, part of your scene at the moment. So thinking about what am I feeling and what do I want more of and how can I lean into that? So if I'm feeling isolated, um, what is the feeling specifically that you would like to feel? Is it connected? Is it uh, that you're missing a sense of fun or adventure or solidarity or being listened to? What is it specifically that you're most looking for and how do you make some plans and identify um, some steps that you can take to get towards those things? So think about caring for yourself through this initial time while you're feeling really isolated and when some kind of interpersonal drama has happened and think about um, what am I feeling and what is it that I want to move towards. So often we feel like stuck in our feelings um, and that we're kind of sentenced to stay in that space when that is definitely not the case. So what are you feeling? What do you want to move towards? What do you want more of? The other thing, if something has gone wrong interpersonally, is we can get into a real loop, what we call rumination, where your thoughts are going over and over on the same topic. So if you're ruminating on this, something that can be really important is to stop that loop of rumination 
and actually pause and consider what do I want to learn from this situation so what is it um, out of whatever has gone wrong here um, in the breakdown of friendships are there patterns that I want to address Um, are there things that I want to reflect on in myself and what I kind of lead with within my friendships or um, skills that I might need to develop around boundaries or around communication or around staying in touch or helping friends feel prioritized whatever it is Um, making a bit of a list of what is it that I can learn from this situation. And then one thing that people find practically quite challenging is uh, how do I find new friends? And that can be really, really tough. And one of the key things that I would consider in this situation is where are your ideal people hanging out? You know, are they at river cleanup days? Are they at um, some kind of personal development course? Are they um, in a book club? Are they in a craft club? Are they in a walking or running group? Like where are the kind of people that you want to attract hanging out and what are they doing? So that you can think about um, where your most likely sort of candidates for new friendships might come from. The thing that can be really hard about that is re-establishing or, you know, starting new friendships when you're in those busy child-rearing years can be difficult because your time is so tapped out. Um, And one of the challenges here is considering how much of a priority is this friendship space to you and are you prepared to put the time in? I had a, a little period of time where... Um, I recognized that I was getting a bit too focused on my work and my work wasn't going to warm my heart. Um, My work wasn't going to be there for me when things went wrong. And I kind of got to a place where the sort of, you know, the key blocks in my life were my family and my work and there wasn't really time for friendship. And I had to sort of reconsider how am I going to prioritize so that I can connect well with my friends beyond sort of check-in texts or, um, you know, brief messages and exchanging memes? How am I actually going to prioritize time for my friends? So sometimes that is quite a challenging or confronting um, question in these busy years. Actually, where is the time for this going to come? And it may be that um, you know, one of the things that, that I have done is earmarked some um, Friday nights as a bit of a friendship night for me, where I'll try and go and hang out with someone that I enjoy hanging out with, um, and like thinking about where is that friendship time happening, or, you know, on the fortnight that my husband plays sport, that night, um, given that he's had a leave pass for the afternoon, that night being a night that I can go out um, and try and catch up with one of my friends. Just thinking about, is there a rhythm that might work for you around maintaining friendships? The other thing that can be useful when you've kind of had a bit of a knock to your confidence about who you are and what you have to offer others is think about um, doing some investment in um, things that can help you to feel good about who you are, about your strengths, about your personality, um, and about the kinds of things, the kinds of good things that you bring to friendships. So it might be time, and a lot of these things you can do at no cost online, but doing something like the Myers-Briggs personality typing, um, the Enneagram, love languages, understanding your um, strengths, finder strengths. That one does have a little bit of a cost attached to it, but it is um, at the modest end. Um, sometimes in these kind of times of life where you're feeling isolated and a bit down on yourself and some things have gone wrong with other people, it's uh, useful for you to... 
uh, kind of do some work around helping yourself to feel good. And you can tell yourself that you're awesome and you're beautiful and all those things, but you know what? <laughs> it doesn't last very long. And sometimes one of the things that we need to do is look at actually what's the evidence that I'm a really good person? What kinds of things do I have to offer the people around me? What kind of good friend am I? Um, what do I need to recognize and own about my personality? And perhaps on the flip side of that, what are the things that I need to be aware of about how I show up with other people that might be affecting how friendships are playing out? The other thing can be thinking about, look, are there some people you could honestly ask if you've got some interpersonal blind spots that are impacting friendships? Like what would your spouse have to say about this? Or is there a really close trusted friend that you think you could go to and ask um, uh, for some feedback around, you know, are there any things that they think, um, you know, they see from that little bit more outside perspective that could be impacting what's happening in your friendships? Uh, I'm thinking about an example here of a time where I asked for feedback that was really significant and it's not related to friendships but um, it pretty quickly helped me find a husband. Uh, I remember having a conversation with a very dear treasured flatmate um, asking him you know what he thought were there any things that he thought I needed to change in order to um, uh, attract a potential spouse. Um, I was feeling quite desperately single at the time and certainly quite isolated. And one of the things he said is, you know, you're a really strong person and there is a really a really soft side to you, but you lead with your strength and the softness shows up later. What, what about if you flipped that around and lead with some of your softness? And it was um, a matter of like six weeks later <laughs> that I met Jono, my husband, um, and certainly, you know, in that environment, I was sitting back a little bit more. And um, obviously things worked out quite well from that point onwards. But uh, yeah, think about are there some trusted people that you could ask for some feedback? Um, you know, it's not about going back and asking people things have gone wrong with for that feedback if the relationship's really gone sour. But actually, are there some things that people who are close to you might observe um, where they could kindly and gently give you some feedback that might be valuable. There may be nothing in that. There may be something that helps you though, so it is perhaps worth a risk. Um, you could forewarn them that your heart's a little bit tender at the moment and that you could do with that feedback being given uh, in a very gentle manner, but um, you know it might be something that shows up, some feedback that helps you avoid this pattern going into the future. Also a scenario where you could think about getting some counselling um, if you've got access to that through your workplace or um, that's something that you want to invest in for yourself uh, to ask those questions around how do I gain my confidence back in connecting with friends and how do I debrief some of these friendship situations. Sometimes that external perspective of a counsellor can help you in that as well. So I hope that there is some advice there and I just want to wish this um, this dear person lots of luck as you embark on um, connecting with others again. Uh, this is somebody that I know and I know that you have got some amazing things to offer as a friend. So I just really want to wish you well um, in uh, highlighting all those things that are great about you that you can share with others. So this next question is about how to support a child that has seen unpleasant content and is not wanting to leave mum or go to school. 
really, really difficult situation and difficult for the child, but potentially, you know, incredibly disruptive for the rest of the family as well. So, um, wow, I really feel for you guys, but whatever is going on here. I don't have any information around what the unpleasant content is or the nature of that. So this is just going to be some general advice. Um, I think one of the key things that's important to do here is think about the emotion regulation for the child. So emotion regulation is essentially, you know, something that we all do um, throughout the day where we take action to try to influence what is happening with our emotions. So you can think about it as, um, in, you know, simple terms like what we do to talk ourselves up when we're feeling down and to talk ourselves down when we're too elevated. Um, but those actions that we take to deal with difficult emotions um, or to deal with any kind of, you know, extreme or intense experience of emotion, we do this thing of emotion regulation throughout our day. So some input for the child around emotion regulation. When you're feeling this, what are the things that you can do and how can I support you with that? Um, when you're feeling that at school, what are the things that you can do? When you're feeling that at school, what are the things that your teachers might be able to help um, you with? One of the reasons why children can often feel um, really um, apprehensive about leaving the familiarity of home or, or leaving that primary attachment figure is because they're not sure how to do their emotion regulation in a different environment or with different people. And when you think about that, you know, that's a challenge for us as adults as well, um, but we've just had more practice at it than children have. So that's a key thing, I think, to understand in this situation that you're strengthening their ability to regulate their emotions is going to be really important. If um, this child has seen something that has been traumatic or troubling for them in some way, uh, it can be really useful to think about their sensory needs. Uh, in, I'm going to give you a really, really brief condensed summary of my kind of understandings around sensory needs and sensory profiling. Um, we either avoid or seek sensory input when we are distressed and um, we you can do some reading about avoidant behaviours or sensory seeking behaviours to consider what is happening for your child in that space. But um, when it comes to our senses, basically we, uh, we have a range of senses. Five's enough to think about. There are actually seven or arguably nine. But anyway, um, just think about those top five senses for now. If you consider with those five senses, we all have a sense that we are overstimulated by. Um, but the good news about that is that we can use that same sense to help soothe and calm ourselves and to help do that emotion regulation work. So for example, you know, a child might have a primary auditory sense and they are overstimulated by noise, but they equally can be calmed by things like having noise-canceling headphones on or listening to certain types of music or sound or making certain sounds um, or, you know, sensations over their ears that change how sounds are registering in their brain and body. Um, so consider doing a bit of learning around sensory needs, around sensory profiling, seeking and avoiding behaviours. Because if a child is um, traumatized or troubled by something, understanding their sensory needs can be really important. Uh, not kind of forgetting about their bodies and how physically children often experience things is incredibly significant if your child's been through something that's challenging. 
The other thing to consider is if they've seen something that they shouldn't have, um, thinking about how to address flashbacks with them and having plans about that. So when you replay or re-see those, um, those scenes in your mind, what is it that you can do um, in response to seeing those things over again? And how can you play out that story so that you're focusing on the part where the good people come in um, or the part where something gets made better um, and finding ways to kind of end that story and that troubling loop um, to bring it to a good conclusion, like making the happy ending in the story. Um, my mum, when we were little, used to play a game with us when we had a nightmare that I still remember. And I actually talk about this with counselling clients quite a bit. She used to call it the good thing, bad thing game or the bad thing, good thing game is probably a better um, title. But we'd wake up in the night and we would, you know, say, I'm having a nightmare. And in the nightmare, you know, a scary um, person came over the fence and they got into our house and this happened. Or, you know, we would share the bad thing that we had seen um, in our imagination. And then she would say, you know, now's the time to play the good thing game. So how do we turn that around that actually a good thing was happening? Oh, that was actually someone who was coming to um, drop toys at our house. Or that was actually this good thing. Now, that's a really oversimplified way of talking about this. But essentially, if there has been something bad and, you know, bad things do happen and children do get exposed to those things at times, you want to be thinking about how you help them make sure that the story doesn't end there in their mind. So the goodies always win um, is something I talk about with children a lot in my counseling space. And how do you get the child to play out that story to the point where good things happen, where kindness happens, where they're shown love, where their needs are met, um, where that thing that went wrong is somehow put right and made better, so that that flashback has an ending that is more positive um, for them. If they have seen something troubling, that can often really impact sleep, particularly for children, for adults as well, but um, can really impact what is happening with their sleep. So asking them what's going on with their sleep and giving them some support around having good sleep. So tightening up on their night routine, reducing screen exposure before bedtime, um, potentially giving them some magnesium that will help their body to um, settle down and unwind, um, either Epsom salts in their bath or magnesium spray on their legs um, or magnesium cream on their legs. Those are um, kind of suggestions are based on the fact that magnesium is a key mineral that we need to get into deep sleep um, and is most uh, efficiently absorbed by our bodies through our skin. So something that can be really supportive if someone's struggling with sleep is magnesium. So pay some attention to that sleep. It's really difficult for any of us um, to do good emotion regulation if we're feeling tired. So think about what is it that you could do that helps support their sleep routine and really focusing on getting them to be in a place um, where they get to experience some deep rest. Also thinking about how they find rest and calm and stillness and relaxation throughout the day. So doing some kids yoga, some meditation with them, some listening to quiet and peaceful music, um, upping the soothing activities in their world like reading stories, cuddled up under a really snuggly blanket in the sun with you outside, you know, thinking about um, those activities that will bring them comfort and closeness and really leaning into that. 
not forgetting as well to talk to the school um, and make sure that they're aware of what's going on, make some good plans around um, how this can be managed, what to do if the child's getting overwhelmed at school, who can help them, um, and even using some visual cues with the child to uh, step through, uh, you know, if they're a little child, I don't know the age of the child, but if they're perhaps in, you know, primary school in their younger years, you might want to think about um, printing out some little pictures, even sort of clip arty or cartoon pictures that show, you know, when I am feeling worried and a little picture of a worried face and then having some little arrows to sort of three things they might choose to do if they're feeling worried or um, a little sort of speech bubble with what they might say to a teacher when they're thinking a certain thought or a code word that they can give their teacher so they don't have to explain things but a really solid plan around what's happening with school. A key thing to remember with children is that, you know, difficult things happen and the key consideration is around the conclusions that the child comes to as a result of what they've seen or experienced and often where children get really stuck is around their interpretation of experiences. Um, in particular, what has seeing this led the child to believe about themselves or other people or their safety? Um, and, you know, thinking about really trying to get into what are the conclusions that they have come to as a result of seeing this? Because that is often where that... Um, lack of safety feeling is coming from um, really getting getting into how is it that they've interpreted this situation and trying to work on that with them. That is a point where often parents need a bit of help um, and so reaching out to school for um, advice around counselling support through the school or someone that they can have some input with or engaging as well yourself for some advice from a counsellor um, can be really helpful but a key thing is what are the conclusions that they have come to as a result of what it is that they have seen. So yeah, sending lots of love. That's a really difficult situation. Um, but one of the things that I, I often say to parents is the little of the child, the little of the changes are that are needed to restore them back to a place um, where they're feeling good again. So think about their emotion regulation, their nervous system, their sensory needs and profiling addressing their sleep and what to do about flashbacks and a plan around the school and debriefing the conclusions that they've come to. I hope that there are some thoughts in that mix that are valuable for you and um, really wish you and your family well as you step through this. In this next question, the person has asked, how can I ever trust a church again after how, I'm going to bleep out the name of the church, after how a certain church treated us? The fear of rejection is so overwhelming. I just firstly want to send you lots of love and hope that you know that there are many other people um, around the country and around the world who have experiences of feeling hurt when they have been involved in some kind of faith community where they expected, rightfully so, to be accepted and safe. And um, it's not you, it's them. <laughs> it's not you, it's the church. And that is a problem that churches um, have become a, a place of, um, you know, where safety is, is actually lacking and where there's not a, enough uh, kind of focus on how to keep people safe and comfortable and make sure that everyone comes away feeling celebrated and that they can contribute and they belong and they're worthwhile and all those good things. So you are right in thinking that that is what church should be. 
you are right in hoping for that for yourself. Um, that is how I believe it is meant to be. And I'm really sorry that you've had an experience that has um, led you to believe the opposite of that or experience the opposite of that in what should be one of the safest places on earth. Um, if you're listening along to this question, you might be thinking, hmm, what's going on here? But uh, one of the key things that um, you might want to know about me is that I'm someone who does hold a Christian faith. Um, that is an important part of my life. And um, it is also, though, something that uh, I have some particular views about how life in church communities goes um, and uh, some a real passion for making sure that the churches, um, uh, that churches take seriously their responsibilities towards people to add to their lives and to not harm them. So um, there has been a bit of work um, from me in that space. It has been interesting. Don't go Googling my name and church or you'll see. Uh, yeah, all sorts of things. You'll go down an internet rabbit hole. Anyway, enough about that. Um, thinking about the sort of markers of safety is a really important way that you can um, consider how you might offer some trust in um, venturing out into a new church. So instead of relying on your feelings, I think one of the things that you want to do is look for what are the pieces of evidence that I would have that I am safe in that church environment? What are the things that I will look for? What have I learnt from the experience I had? But what are the things that I'm going to look for that will help give me evidence that I am in a safe environment and um, that I can give away a little bit more of my trust? So some ideas around that. Um, what can you get to know about the leadership? What do people say? What's the feedback from people who've been around for a while and not just you know what do the people at the front say about being part of that church but what do sort of joe and jane blogs and the pews have to say um, about their experience of the church as well you might want to go kind of um, critically thinking about how long people have been part of that faith community you know are there people who have been there in that medium term kind of range not necessarily the long-standing yeah I'm completely sold out for this place people um or the yeah I'm new here and I'm loving it people but what about those people in that middle bit um and what is it that they have to say about their experiences of the church what's kept people um kind of staying around for that kind of chunk of time what can you get to know about what the church believes how transparent are they with what it is that they believe and how it is that they operate um how does power and control work with the leadership um, what processes do they have around people giving feedback on how they have found things? How robust are their policies or their processes and how easy is it to kind of get to know that sort of stuff? How transparent are they around that? And also thinking about things like finances. Finances is a really good giveaway, I think, um, in any kind of entity. I don't love the idea that churches go, yeah, yeah, well, we're a charity and you can look that up on the Charities Commission website. I just don't think that that actually tells you much about how they um, steward uh, finances that are given to them from their congregation. I think what you want to look for is, do they actually offer a uh, description back to their stakeholders that is really easily understood around how they've chosen to use the finances that have been gifted to them from their congregation. I think that you learn a lot about a church by how they um, treat and relate to money. So um, there's some some of my ideas of markers, but what you might want to think about is what are the markers that are important to you and what are the, instead of relying on just feelings, what is it that you can look for that gives you evidence that this might be a safe place to be, that this place might indeed be different. 
The other thing that you can think about is, you know, are there people who've landed there in this new church that you're considering who've come from similar backgrounds? How have they found they've been looked after and what's been important for them from a safety perspective too? I think as well, when it comes to things like uh, re-establishing trust in a scenario where we've been hurt, I always imagine the analogy of wading in the water. And what you want to do first is that kind of, you know, put your hand in before you even put your feet in the water. Put your hand in and touch and see, um, okay, you know, the water is that hot or cold or whatever it is. Um, and then you're putting your toe in and then you're getting up to your ankles and then you're getting up to your calves and you're certainly not like jumping in right from the get-go. And that's really important in re-establishing trust in you know any kind of relationship or environment where we've experienced some past hurt is only giving out our trust um, in little steps as we kind of wade through the water. So uh, you're not giving away your trust uh, disproportionately or inappropriately in, in um, kind of giving that away too early or too easily without that being earned and without you being certain of kind of giving that away in small doses as you go. The other thing to think about is, uh, you know, you've said here the fear of rejection is really overwhelming. Um, have you done some work around that rejection? Um, is that a theme at all in your life? Could you benefit from some support around that? either reading or engaging with someone for conversations about that? Have you thought about something like spiritual direction, which can be really helpful in this kind of situation? Um, but essentially, what we want to do is make sure that uh, acceptance is not on the table. And that sounds completely wrong, because of course, as part of a church community, you, sh you should feel accepted for who you are. You should feel valued and that you can contribute and all of those good things. But actually, for a period of time, you need to take that off the table. Um, you're not giving these people power to define you, to describe you, to determine whether you're in or out, to determine whether you're good enough or not. That should not be coming from these people. And sometimes churches are set up to really draw us in to a dynamic where we um, we feel um, lots of you know great things and we feel celebrated for who we are and that's kind of part of the capital that they trade on we just have to be cautious about the extent to which we let others determine those things for ourselves and um, I kind of see that like uh, the things that we most want in life we have to work on that for ourselves as if we are making the cake and other people can put some icing on it other people can give us a little bit of that sense of um, you know, reflecting or adding to our sense of worth and value, but you've got to make your own cake is um, the way that I often think of that. And if we go looking to others for what we need to give to ourselves, we often get in trouble in that space. Um, so yeah, perhaps some reflections around how this whole kind of theme of rejection plays out for you and how you want to manage that in a new kind of healthy way going forward within um, within the life of church. You could think too about telling someone about your background and experience, about the things that you're fearful of and just making sure that that is named in this new environment so that you feel you know less isolated with that hopefully but tell someone what it is that you're worried about and, um, and get that out in the open so that you're not feeling like you're carrying this or bottling it all up yourself. You could make a time to go and talk to one of the um, pastoral care people or a life group leader or someone in the new church environment and just say, hey, this has been part of my experience. And I know that um, 
uh, you know, I'm uh, someone who's, you know, bumped into people where they've been saying, hey, look, this is, you know, I've come from this environment, I'm feeling a bit burnt because of this or this, and it just means people can relate to you a little bit more um, cautiously or um, be tender around those things that uh, might be difficult or problematic for you, that people can show you some understanding around those things. So don't be afraid to share with other people um, where that is at for you. So yeah, I hope that's some good, uh, some good kind of starting point. Fully get and acknowledge it is really hard. This is not how it should be. It's not you. It's them. This is a problem with churches, not just in New Zealand, not just particular churches, um, but all around the world. Look for your evidence and your markers of. Um, the things that you can look to to give you data about your safety. Um, don't put acceptance on the table. Work on that cake for yourself of how you accept and value yourself um, and make sure you're not giving away your power in this environment. You can wade in the water gradually. You can tell someone where you're at and um, give away your trust in tiny little portions as you seek to restore that. Uh, I really wish you well and I do hope, I, I you know, um, know that it's not imperative that people go to church as part of their experience of faith but I do think it can be really important um, and for a lot of people it's really important and I'm so sorry you've had the experiences that you've had and I really hope that you can find somewhere where you do feel accepted and loved and celebrated on top of um, your ability to give yourself a sense of all those great things as well so I'm um, sending you lots of love and wishing you all the best as you navigate this. Okay, here we go with another question. This person has asked, what's your advice for trusting a guy I met online? They've said uh, he's been good. I'm just not wanting to be a statistic. I love this question. I am of an age where I, I kind of feel fortunate in that I got to have a little bit of a taster of the online dating world and what a disaster it can be. Um, before kind of having gotten locked into a, a, a permanent relationship. Um, but I haven't hung out in the online dating scene for uh, for a while, clearly. And, um, you know, one of the things that I hear a lot about from clients is just how problematic this whole world is. So, yeah, what a challenge, hey? So some thoughts around safety, I think, you know, there, there are some basic things that you're probably aware of around um, making sure that there are you're not rushing into meeting there's been a number of conversations before getting to that point um, thinking about meeting in a public place uh, people all, always knowing where you are so somebody that you um, can do a sort of check-in check-out with about I'm going to this place and I'm you know meeting this person and um, I am you know going to message you in an hour and let you know how I'm doing or something like that so you've got that kind of safety check-in um, being really sensible with things like making sure that you guard your drink if you're drinking or making sure that alcohol is not included in any early dates um, and making sure that you're in an appropriately public setting. The other thing that I think is that if he's a really good guy, if you put out there to him, hey, uh, you know, this is a worry and concern for me, it would be really interesting to see what he does with that. So, um, you know, as a woman navigating the dating scene, I actually have always got in the back of my mind that fear for my safety, um, for my physical safety, um, but also for my mental and emotional safety. And... Um, 
I just want to name that. And if he is a good man, he will likely hold that with you and um, up the ante around what he can do to reassure you on that. I think it's a great question to ask. Um, why should I trust you? Uh, what evidence can you give me that um, you are a trustworthy, good human being? And see how they take that question. You know, if, if he is uh, someone who is um, genuinely interested in you and worthwhile spending some time with and he's a person of good character, then he'll likely answer those questions. You know, I'm sure that that's not like message number two in the rank of things, but, you know, something important to, um, to name and to see, you know, what is his response if you're getting towards, you know, further dates and thinking about um, spending time together sort of out of public settings um, or in environments that feel a little bit more personal for you, then you want to be asking, um, you know, what what's their argument for why you should be offering them that kind of trust? I'm sure you can find a nice soft way of asking that. The other thing that I think is quite sensible is to do a bit of reference or background checking. Um, if you need me to put on my licensed private investigator hat, I can. No, I actually don't do that, even though people think I um, stake out cheating husbands in the bushes, so that's not part of my role. But you can get your own private investigator sense on and see who you can find as mutual friends, um, have a look into uh, where they work and all those sorts of things, and see what you can find out about, you know, does the story of who they are add up in some way um, so you know some kind of little reference or background check can be a good idea but I think that one of the key things that you're expressing in this question is it's really hard to just rely on your feelings it's really quite challenging to be in a situation where you're um, trying to rely on your feelings for your judgment and actually one of the things that we can do is put safety mechanisms in place for ourselves in terms of other people knowing where we are those sorts of things but also what is what are the things that I would be looking for to determine my safety so thinking about facts and data that back up uh, your experience and your feeling around a person we definitely want to not go into things like the dating world just based on our feelings. We want to pull some facts in to make sure that we're making balanced, reasonable decisions that are including, um, sure, our heart, but also our mind. Um, and we've been given a brain to help keep us safe. And if there is a bit of anxiety for you around, you know, not wanting to be a statistic and wanting to navigate this time well, then let your mind do some work for you on finding evidence and finding data and doing the things that you can do to ensure your safety and then reassuring yourself from that point onwards. So I hope that that gives you some advice. All the best. I hope that um, we can hear some positive stories about your dating life. Um, and yeah, I really hope that this goes well. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'd love to connect, so feel free to find me on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe so you can see when the next podcast episode is out. See you next time.